So I'm not sure if we've mentioned, but we have a book coming out. We do. It's called Learning and Teaching While White, Anti-Racist Strategies for School Communities, and it's coming out in late July. It's available for pre-order now on the Norton Publishing website, bookshop.org, and really anywhere books are sold. The last chapter of the book was written specifically for white parents, so our podcast has been mirroring that chapter about how we can talk to our children about race, as well as think about how our individual actions really affect the entire community. The last two episodes we did were about white parents talking about race to their white kids and why it is so important. And in this episode, Parenting While White Part 2, we look at the collective impact that white parents can have on public education. I interviewed Ellen Gettler, a white parent who lives in Minneapolis. Yeah, the public schools there tried to deal with the fact that the schools are even more racially segregated than the city. Unlike most desegregation plans that mandate that children of color travel to white schools, Minneapolis officials ask that white families do the integrating. So that's what Ellen, a parent of two young children, ultimately did. I asked her where this process started for her. When it came time for us to decide where to start our oldest kid in school, we made the decision kind of based on the tools that we had, which was largely how we heard other parents around us talking about it. And there really is, now I sort of see that there really is a strong white parent culture that focuses on the sort of anxiety and competition and maximization of school choice. And there are systems set up to really support that anxiety. And so, you know, we kind of heard what was being talked about on the playground or with friends. And we launched what was like a pretty involved process trying to decide which school would be best for our kid. And that included the community school that we were assigned to. It included some possible magnet schools, which are open in our city, which are open to folks citywide. And of course, we would have had the choice also of charter schools or private schools, but those were not, we we knew we wanted to be in the public school system in Minneapolis. And you know, it was a it was a process. We had a spreadsheet. We we literally did an interview with like one or two parents. We were really trying to maximize this choice. And I think what we weren't aware of is that the conversation around which school, I should say, what we weren't really conscious of at the time is that that conversation for white parents is highly racialized. It's really it really exists in the context of what are the good schools and what are the bad schools. And those schools really break down along racial lines. But we didn't really have that awareness. We were looking for what were the offerings, you know, what were the test scores, you know, sort of all of the criteria that I think white parents apply to these decisions. And we ended up at our community school, which was really talked about in our community. It was in our sphere. It was really talked about in our sphere as a good school, in quotes. And it's also a majority white school. Can you remember when you were going through this process, what felt most important for you and for your kids, the thing you were really focused on? Oh, gosh, like enrichment was such a huge theme for us. Where was our kid going to get the most and most varied opportunities for enrichment? And so we wanted to know, like, what were the field trips and and what were the, how many cool looking things did they have in the classroom? And, oh, you know, our community school had an, an arts residency. So they were going to get to do African drumming kind of, you know, between classes sometimes. And 
how many elected, not electives, how many, how many specialists would they have? Do they have music? Do they have art? Mm -hmm. You know, it was really a huge focus on kind of what were the cultural, what was the cultural training that they were going to get to be these highly cultured adults. I think that was sort of, you know, what, what that came, where that came from for us. Mm. I think our sphere was sort of limited to the tools we had of the values of competition, of anxiety, of scarcity, of how to, how to make sure our kids are the best within a sort of like white dominant society. Right. I'm trying to think if there were other other things. I mean, we visited the schools. And so, you know, we were kind of, my God, I have to say, like, we literally had conversations about the architecture of the buildings, you know, like, <laughs> and we are not alone. Yeah. I have heard so many, no. <laughs> I have heard so many white parent peers just say like, mm, I just, you know, I think the architecture, there's not enough light in the rooms. There's a reason that some buildings have more sunlight than others. There is a reason that some buildings are in better repair than others or that, you know, there are some delightful old buildings that were built built in wealthy parts of town because that's the way our education system has been designed is to cater to, you know, wealthier parent segments. And so I think furthermore, to base our decisions on what environment felt like it was most delightful to us was really ignoring the structural realities of who gets to go to which kind of schools and then furthermore playing into those realities and, and upholding those inequitable realities. So what changed for you? What changed was that in my older child's kindergarten year, our district proposed some changes that largely would affect sort of who went, to, who was assigned to which school. And the changes were designed to try to use the structural tools that the district has at its disposal, which are limited tools, but to use the tools to achieve more equitable outcomes for the district. Our Minneapolis school district has one of the most inequitable set of outcomes of any district in the entire country. We have the biggest, dead last, what I would call opportunity gap, what is often called achievement gap in the entire country. Our school system is more segregated than our city, which is a highly segregated city. And so the school board proposed these changes, which elicited an immediate reaction from particularly the white parents in our school community. And the reaction was very racist. I don't think the parents themselves would have even recognized their reaction as racist. The kinds of things that were said were, why are they trying to take this away from us? What was being proposed is that our middle school and high school pathway schools would shift from predominantly white middle school and high school to a predominantly black high school and a and a majority kids of color middle school. When you heard parents talking about this, uh, why do why do why do they want to take this away? Did you recognize it as racist at the time? Do you think I could feel I could feel it in my, this is going to sound weird. I could I could feel it, and I didn't have words 
to articulate it. And I think this happens a lot within sort of white consciousness of racism. Like we can kind of feel our hearts start racing. We can feel a, a sense of like, wait a minute, a sense of dissonance. And for me, the experience was, let's see, for me, the experience was really affected by the, by the fact that I had gone to integrated middle school and high schools. And at the time, I didn't have the awareness to understand the racialization of how the conversation around race happened around me. Race was happening around me all the time because I was in integrated environments, but I didn't have a lot of concrete awareness of it. Again, it was sort of a feeling. But what I do remember from those experiences is at each change point, when I and my peers were changing from elementary school to middle school, and then from middle school to high school, there's sort of the opportunity for families to assess which there's a bit of choice, you know, which, and so families had the opportunity to assess which school they're going to go to. And I remember hearing friends talk about how their parents wouldn't allow them to go to ultimately the schools that I ended up at, that I did choose to go to because they were my assigned schools, because they said things like, that school is unsafe. My parents don't think it's a good enough education. And then I went to those schools and I knew what it was like on the inside. And so, so now I'm a parent, I'm an adult. I largely haven't thought about these issues in education for, you know, decades. <laughs> and our district proposes these changes that really seem to make perfect sense to me because we as a country have been struggling to integrate really against the thwarting of white parents for, for decades. So these changes make sense to me. And what I hear parents around me saying now that I'm an adult is the exact same language, the exact same words that I heard from my friend's parents a generation ago. And that hit me really hard because I had had the experience of going to the schools that people were afraid of. And those experiences were largely very positive. They were complex. They were in some cases challenging, but in ways that really, really benefited how I grew and changed as an adult and how I saw the world. And so I viewed those experiences of an integrated education as having been very formative and positive. And so to hear the adults around me react with fear and entitlement and really utter dismissal of how our actions as white parents individually and collectively affect the education system and the educational experience of our neighbors and really of educational outcomes as a whole that really that that did really upset me so is that what you think got the ball rolling for you is that sort of connecting that childhood experience to what you were hearing in that moment it was definitely a pivotal moment i think what came up very strongly for me was that I knew this was wrong. I knew what people were saying was wrong. I knew that it had an impact and I didn't have the tools to speak up. So in part, I think my increased engagement was me trying to discover how do I speak up? How do I speak my values in these situations? Because I would get so sort of overwhelmed and angry and, um, you know, I just didn't have the equipment to sort of in a mo in the moment confront statements like, you know, one parent said to me, I am not sending my child to that school to get beat up. That really provoked me. And I just thought like, you know, in the moment I just had this reaction, like, what are you talking about? You've never been to this school. You know, you know, I felt like 
like I think the the connection point for me was like I went to that school, not that specific school, but I went to a school that what parents said about us was I'm not sending my kids to that school to get beat up. You know, that was my school experience and it was tremendous. And so to hear another parent say I'm not sending my kid to that school to get beat up, I just thought like what the what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and then and so it would it pushed me into trying to figure out like how do I respond to that moment instead of just screaming at her like what the hell are you talking about? And <laughs> and right. you know to 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 figure out how do I speak up about what my experience was and really just challenge those absolutely unexamined assumptions. You know, literally if you look at the school that that our community was currently assigned to, for example, like the suspension data was much higher at that school than the new school that we were going to be assigned. I mean, there just isn't the data to support this. But to like how do you speak aloud to someone like you think your kids going to be beat up because they're more kids of color? That's a profoundly racist thought. <laughs> to hear how race was implicit in what white parents were saying, but she heard it even more clearly in what they weren't saying. Yeah, I mean, I think there was there were the concerns about, you know, how many languages do they teach there? And the test scores are terrible. There's no way it can be a good education. Um, you know, I mean, I think what's important to really name and to be honest about is that none of it was directly naming race but it was all highly racialized right like when you have an understanding of of systems and how our schools are designed and how inequitably funded both of these schools have been in part because our funding is based on enrollment and so our school system is left to basically beg for majority white parent enrollment in various schools and are left trying to sort of you know <laughs> like beg for parents to go there or require them to go there right the high school in particular is in a section of your, our city that has a higher rate of gun violence. It's also a formerly redlined neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that has a higher concentration of people of color. And so what I heard a lot of parents saying was like, it's just not safe. It's just not safe. And, you know, that's a really complicated public safety. Our city has such a fraught and broken relationship with safety right now and has for some time. And so it's very, it's very, very complicated. What, what's really interesting to me, and I would say that it is something that my husband and I had to sort of con like take, take head on when we were discussing. I mean, at the time it was like, we had to decide that we were really on board with, it's, it's absurd, right? Like with where our kids are going to go to high school. Like our kids at this point is in first grade. <laughs> like, <laughs> and Let's see. I have a lot that I want to say about the safety question, but here's what I'm going to say about how we have experienced safety in schools. At our majority white school that was lauded in our city as a good school, as a very coveted school that people would literally buy their homes in this neighborhood because they wanted their kids to go to the school. It's the only place in my kids' uh you know, now collective seven years of school experiences where one of my kids has been punched. It was by a white boy in kindergarten. And the situation was treated 
not like anyone was a perpetrator, which is totally appropriate. No five-year-old is a perpetrator when they kind of haul off and whack another kid. It was addressed with compassion and with sort of bringing the kids together. And I thought that was wonderful. And I also really questioned if that's how it would have been addressed if the little boy had been, for example, a black boy. The other thing I want to say about safety, which my which my husband <laughs> was the one to point out, in every school building across our country, there are kids who are either being trained on or doing drills for active shooters inside schools. This is the unthinkable reality that parents and kids across the country have to hold. And those are events that when my husband and I later were thinking about which school, you know, which schools would work for us, the honest truth is that those are events that are not happening in very diverse school environments. Those are events that are happening in predominantly white and suburban schools. And so, yes, there is the reality that there are serious public safety concerns that we should not feel okay about that any of our neighbors are having to endure. And still, there really is no evidence that the safety within a school building is of concern for students in those buildings. And in fact, I mean, I think we need to be honest that the sense of the sense of safety for kids of color in most school buildings throughout our country are highly threatened on a daily basis, be that, you know, maybe physically, but really in terms of lack of inclusion and welcoming and affirmation of identity and because they're over-disciplined and they're under-challenged. And the question of safety is one that I think we as white parents are not very honest about and kind of use as a crutch to kind of get us to where we really want to be based on our socialization, which is that I think white parents really want to be with other white people as much as we can. So what happened from here? So you're starting to develop this consciousness, tools to address these comments in the moment. What what happens from there? I mean, I think what happened as a result of that conversation that came up within this parent community that was all around us is that we realized that we've, we'd really been complicit in all of this, that we really hadn't examined how our actions were aligned with our values. It was clear to us that what was being said was a violation of our values, but we weren't doing anything any differently from folks who were sort of saying those comments. And so I think it really called on us to rethink how we were showing up in our community, how we were showing up in our school. We, My husband and I, along with a, just a small handful of other parents, started a parent-led equity group within our school as a way of trying to speak aloud those values within the school community. It was a wonderful way to find community because I think part of learning to speak up and learning to align actions with values is that it's helpful to do that in community. It's helpful to have other people to process with, to be accountable to, to be inspired by and kind of motivated by. And, you know, we struggled to figure out sort of what what any and what any actions would look like, but it did feel important to plant a flag at least to say very publicly in the school community we stand for the values of equity and anti-racism, and we're willing to engage in some really hard work to figure out what that looks like, what it means, to really figure out even within ourselves what that means, but we have to say something. And in the backdrop, that is when George Floyd was murdered in our city, and what we call the uprising, the sort of racial reckoning 
the the stage of racial reckoning that was happening globally was really very acute in our own city. And so the work in our equity committee really had that as the backdrop. In some ways, it really drew more parents into a community of people who wanted to say, this is, we will not stand for this. We need to work together for anti-racism. A big piece of that is working in our school building and then really calling on ourselves and our peers to stop viewing our school experience as within one building, but at the very least citywide. I mean, I think that's also what's really cultivated in our education system is this kind of competition for scarce resources that even when we have a disproportionate amount of those resources available to us, we perceive that scarcity and compete for it. And the result is that it's leaving so, so many children in our cities and towns with so few of those already scarce resources. And those of us who have them really don't recognize the structural impact that we're having. So part of the work of this group was to really call on ourselves and on each other to recognize that our actions in public education have an impact and that we are part of a, at the very least, a citywide educational community that really, that, and that harm is really caused when we try to hoard even more resources for our already highly resourced public school. You know, but I think even from this collective values perspective, the idea that we as white parents cannot go to school with kids who are experiencing poverty or experiencing racism, or perhaps even experiencing some level of violence in their neighborhoods, you know, that we have to somehow shield ourselves from that really just demonstrates how we cannot tolerate the idea of, of being a part of it or being in community with individuals who are experiencing hardship. And what undergirds this, right, is schools begging white families to to enroll because the more the closer the proximity to whiteness makes the school better, considered better, right? That's right. So this identification of good and bad schools really maps perfectly and really precisely onto which schools are whiter and which schools are less white. And you know, parents will use white parents will use all kinds of other language to describe it. And they don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? It's like, no, 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 but it's about the test scores. It's about the safety. It's about the enrichment. And what I've seen and what I saw in our in our own community is that when you press people on that, and when you really get at the racialization, you know, the fact that all of these things are that map perfectly onto whiteness or lack of whiteness, they can't, you know, it's like we freeze. We can't, we sort of can't admit that that's what's really going on. And I think it's what leads to a real separation between what we, as as especially progressive white parents, say we believe and then the actions that we'll take. And that brings me back to something you said at the beginning when you said, I just had a feeling. I mean, and I talk about this all the time. On the one hand, we don't know as white people, but on the other hand, we know, right? <laughs> we can feel it. We know. We know. We know. We know. We know because it's that twinge of moral discomfort. It's that, you know, we know when we find ourselves saying, gosh, somebody's telling me that this is a racist action. You know, parents around me literally would say these things like, I really believe in equity. I, I love living in the city. I love being in diversity. 
but I just have to get what's best for my kid. Right. And I think it's that, but that's where it lives. That's where the feeling in us lives, but we don't tend to cultivate a practice of being able to sort of stay in that space and really examine like, well, what's happening in the butt? (laughs) My experience of racism, particularly among progressive white people, is that it lives and flourishes much more in the what we don't say, in the what we're not willing to talk about, in where we won't go, in when we quietly pick up and leave, when we quietly put our house on the market and just say, "Mm, you know, it just, it just felt like our house was getting too small this year. I'm just looking for a school that offers Japanese, but then we enroll in a school that doesn't have Japanese. You know, it's in the, it's in, it's in the dissonance and the mismatch. It's in as much who we don't know, who we don't talk to, who we don't listen to, who we don't see, because that reflects who we don't value and the spaces that we don't value and the spaces that are so devalued to us that they're just invisible. They're ignored. They're seen as worthless. And I think that connects to why this language around good schools and bad schools is so highly racialized, because we won't really acknowledge to ourselves that we do have a hierarchical value of humans that we've been socialized with. As white people, we've been trained to not talk about race. My generation of white adults was raised in the colorblind philosophy. We were raised that you don't talk about it if you don't if you pretend to not see race, then it doesn't exist. And then you will treat everyone equally and it will all be fine. And that has been disproven. But we don't have any of the skills. We were raised that race was unmentionable, that it was taboo. And so we don't have the skills to say aloud, ooh, this is coming up in me, or ooh, I'm thinking this, or wait a minute, this doesn't seem aligned with what I say I believe, or I'm taking an action that is demonstrating to my children what I believe, but I'm saying that I believe a different thing and telling my children that I believe a different thing. Those are the spaces where racism thrives for especially white progressives. So how did you start to align your actions with your values? So a big process was in finding community of people who shared values. And in part, it was to push I felt the need to really push myself to develop some of those skills, to talk about race, to speak my values aloud, to disrupt when things were happening or being said around me or not being said around me that, frankly, I did not have the skills to disrupt. And I would go home from those instances and I wouldn't be able to sleep and I would be running dialogues in my head and I would, you know, it's just like... um, And so finding a community was a way to push myself to develop those skills and tools. And as part of finding that community, you know, so this, this, these district changes did pass and a significant portion of those changes was, or in a big part of those changes was that the magnet programs that are open to students citywide were being moved geographically to be more in the center of the city so that they would be accessible to students no matter where they lived in the city. And they were intentionally placed in schools that were not predominantly white and um, and often in under-enrolled schools to help boost the enrollment of those schools. And also that there would be an intention that ultimately the student body of those magnets would reflect the city's population. So as Ellen and her husband started to look around, 
they started seeing things in a new light. And so we went and toured a bunch of schools, which was at this point now the pandemic had started. So you couldn't even walk into buildings. They were happening virtually. And my husband and I just began a process of a lot of conversations and really deep discernment. And that that really was a process of values discernment for us. I mean, keep in mind, again, like we are living in a in a community that has, has just been ripped apart by police violence. We are living in a pandemic where we're deeply isolated and systems are starting to fail us as white people that have failed our neighbors of color for you know generations. But now we as white people are experiencing this kind of really significant systems failure. And I think for us, I don't know, for some people that might have driven them in the opposite direction. But for us, I think it really called on us to be really honest and clear-eyed about like, what do we want this life to be about, especially as parents for our kids? You know, what kind of education do we want for them? What do we, what do we think is valuable in an education? And we, in, that, in those discussions, then I think we had to confront the uglier things in us that had really gone unspoken and unrecognized that we had to just like take out and look at and, and say out loud. So one of those things for us was that, you know, my husband and I both are people who had had a lot of success in the, in the education system. So like we were really academically motivated. We got a lot of like, you know, we got a lot of affirmation and opportunity that came because we performed the way that the education system sort of asked us to, and then it yielded great benefits for us. And so because we we both had had that kind of experience, what we had to say out loud was that we were carrying, let's see, how did, it, I think it was like kind of interesting how this happened too, because at one point we just said like, okay, well, let's just say out loud what we're afraid of. What are we afraid of? And we had to say, you know, we have this feeling inside that in order to be an okay adult, you ha- in order to like have a job and have like a good job, you got to go to a certain kind of college. You certainly have to go to college and you have to go to like a certain, like a certain kind of college. And if you're going to get into that certain kind of college, then you have to have a certain kind of high school experience. And if you're going to do well and be prepared for that high school experience, then you have to have the preparation in elementary and middle school that's going to prepare you to achieve and succeed on the level that you're going to need in high school to get into this college, to get a job so that you don't die when you're an adult. <laughs> and And then it goes back to like the daycare that you choose for your infant, right? It's like, well, if you're going to, we realize that like that is what we were holding inside of us was that if we didn't make the right choice, if we didn't set our kids up to just like heap on every bit of like training and academic challenge every step of the way, then they weren't going to succeed. And once we said that aloud, this is also, by the way, at the right on the heels of that like college admissions scandal. Yeah, yeah, that was happening. That you know, everybody looked at that and was just like, "Oh, that's just so deplorable." Can you believe those parents like paying for those their children to get into school? Can you believe like, as a kid, you have to look at your parent and and say like, "You didn't believe in me enough to like just go to college on my own. You had to pay somebody to like bribe them to get me into college." You know, it's just like it all it all seemed so ugly from the outside, and I was like, "Oh my god, we are one." one hair step away. That is the values. That is a version of that same value system that we are holding inside of us when we do not recognize that that's what we're doing. Because it, what it does is it, it, it says that, the, that an educational experience is about achievement and it's about amassing as much privilege and advantage as you possibly can. That is what is underlying those values. And so we started, we had to start saying like, well, what are our values for an education? We, what do we want our kids to have? And we were talking about things like citizenship and social emotional skills and being a part of a community 
being secure in their identity, developing confidence, having the skills to problem solve. And frankly, because we had started to do this work as part of like a parent-led equity group, we were like, our kids need to have the skills to work for justice. Like we are actually not looking for our skills to, for our kids to live a life of privilege and entitlement hoarding, because what we are living right now is we are living within a community that is ripped apart by injustice and it is painful. And we were experiencing the incredible benefits and rewards, despite the fact that it's quite difficult, but the benefits and rewards of working alongside other people to fight for the world that you want to see and realizing that it was hard for us in many ways because we had not developed the skills within a context of privilege that would actually allow us to engage in that work of justice. So we were like, we need, we want our kids to actually have these skills. Like we want them to have conflict, the skills of conflict in these very privileged environments. Oftentimes this kind of idea of social justice is held as gospel yeah. and, and there's no way to practice it because there's, because there's nobody in that environment who is actually living any of those experiences or who sort of has a different view or take or lens or actually challenges somebody to like develop the muscles to be able to act out justice. Where we landed in the end was that like there really was no quote unquote right choice. Like we knew that this is about how our family lives in community, right? And the school is one piece of that. But we happen to have the option within our community of entering into a school community that we knew would offer us both the skills and benefits and also the challenges to really grow into like what, you know, what were those things that we wanted in our life a lot more. So your child, children, you moved them to a different school. We did. So we enrolled them in school and then did like a ton of, you know, hand wringing over the summer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I should say we simultaneously, I just felt a huge wave of relief. Um, Yeah, I was really looking forward to the change. And at the same time, we were entering into a school that was at the time more than 90% African-American that was largely attended by kids who lived in the neighborhood really immediately surrounding the school. And that had, again, an over 90% um, sort of free and reduced lunch status. And so it was big changes for our family. And also, I think I started to feel really concerned, like, do we have a right to come into the schools? Like, the district is asking us to do this. Mm-hmm. But the district doesn't have a great track record of, like, asking families of color what they want either, right? So, like, right, right. <laughs> um, and so, like, how families of color want this work to happen. And so... Anyway, there was some hand-wringing over the summer, like, oh, God, like, are we just coming in to colonize this space? And again, fortunately, I think for the community of people around us, like, we could we could really be, you know, I think people really could offer us the perspective of, like, this, is to, this isn't one way or one way or the other way work. This is about con- being contextual, about being in relationship, about taking what comes and knowing that you can, that you can mess up and try again and, you know, like, yeah just go in and figure it out. And so we started school and my gosh, like it was clear after the first week of school that it was one of the best decisions that we had ever made. My son who had spent a few years in our community school, just his whole body changed. I didn't realize before that how much anxiety he had been carrying and he just came home relaxed. 
and chatting about the day. And he would bring up to me, you know, again, keep in mind, like there is that we have a context in our city of a lot of really hard things happening. And the students in my kid's school are, you know, these things aren't theoretical for them, right? Like these things are happening in their neighborhood. They're happening to their family members. So there are conversations coming up right away at the beginning of the year. And what I also realized was that, especially my older son's teacher, you know, my younger son is in pre-K. So there's just a lot of like, we sing songs and we get you know, like yeah, just a, yeah. a lot of my analysis of the school experience, I think sort of centers on my older son's experience because he comes home with like really complex and sophisticated ideas and questions and um, and and because he's the oldest kid and we always they're always the testing ground for everyone else. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, you know, he came home and started talking about some of the conversations that were coming up in class. And it was so clear to me that he also got has has this teacher who's a woman of color who is just incredibly skilled at relationship building with these students, at creating safe space for identity. Like she is having conversations at the beginning of the year, which I think for all teachers is a time to like, you know, you don't jump right into like learning the hardest concepts. You take time to like establish routines and build relationships in the classroom so that you can use that as a foundation for the learning later on. And we were accustomed to that kind of rhythm of how a, an academic year goes and kind of that like, but in the past, my, my kid was usually just like really bored and frustrated. He was like, we're not doing anything. And and here he's coming home with just these like incredible conversations, these really complex and sophisticated, and in some cases, really hard conversations, because, you know, as, as people who do hold a tremendous amount of white privilege, there are themes coming up that we're not asked to confront, right? So it truly is a situation where, you know, my son is in community, in school community, with people who are, who are having to confront hard things. And his teacher does this incredible work of just creating safe space and holding identity. And so he comes home and I realize that the work of being in this school community is not really for my kids. Like they're fine. They are better than ever. They're in small classes with incredibly skilled teachers and loving classmates who don't really carry the same. There's not a culture in the school of sort of a one-way expectation of like what you need to do to be good enough, which is kind of how I experienced our, our majority white school there really is a lot more of a sort of um, meet you where you're at, like holding your identity. We're just, you know, we're kind of all good here feeling. And what I realized is that the work that needed to be done was really on us as parents, because as my son would come home and sort of say a couple things that, that would happen in class or that kids had said or something, I realized, and I only realized this because again, I had been sort of supported by a community of peers to have some tools to work on my own reactions, you know, in the work of anti-racism, right? And so it's like, I knew enough to say, like, whenever somebody says something like pause, and notice your body and don't react, and listen, and go into a place of curiosity and questioning, right? So it's like, because I had access to these strategies, my son would like mention something that another kid had said. And I would re and I realized, like, I was having a reaction. And it would be like a racialized reaction. And I'd be like, wait, is this kid saying this because, because he wants to like do something mean or like, wait, what's going on with this kid? Who is this kid? Is he, you know, that's what would come up for me because I had an assumption about a black student's identity. I realized that I had some assumptions about like, well, what must he mean by that? Or, you know, and as I paused and noticed that reaction in myself and responded to my son from a place of questioning and curiosity as opposed to like, oh my gosh, what just happened? 
he came forward with it, it, it turned out that every single one of those situations was not at all like what my racist I'm we are all conditioned, you know, with racism in this country, you know, like it was not at all what that conditioning told my body and told my mind to react as. But every single one of those stories was actually like an incredibly beautiful story of like relationship building and community building. And actually the skills that me and my husband sat in our basement and said, we want our kids to have the skills of being in community and conflict building and holding two truths and all of the work that we as human beings need to, to be able to do, to be able to be in diverse community and to be able to work for justice and change in our world and to be able to see people for who they are and not the story that we're writing about them. Like we sat in our basement and we said that, and then here my son would walk through the door and would say something and I would like, <gasps> and then realize like, if I paused and said like, oh, tell me more, what happened next? How did you feel about that? The story that would unfold from him in every instance, was a story that illustrated the skills that we were hoping that he would build. And so the change that's the biggest that's happening for our family is in us as the adults. It's in how we are asked to grow our skills and our capacity in order to be able to change and actually living into our values. Our kids are wholly more capable of being in incredibly like courageous and authentic relationship in ways that we as adults actually can't handle. It's it's we as the adults who can't handle being the guinea pigs. Our kids are great at it. And if we let them, our kids will teach us enormous things about it. But they won't actually if we can't do the work alongside them. What white parents also often miss is when we evaluate schools based on their levels of whiteness, it is by default a white supremacist evaluation. We are looking at schools to assess how well or not well they fit into white norms, how well they perform whiteness, how many white people do they have, but also how well do they live up to white cultural norms and values. And we just utterly miss the incredible gifts that are available in spaces that are not white spaces. And the incredible gifts of being in humble relationship with those spaces and the gifts that are available to our children we so want for a kid to have the best of everything, but by defining the best as white, we miss out on what is truly the best of everything. I really love this interview. There are so many mic drop moments, and it was a doozy for me personally, as I've tried to navigate my own children's school experiences as a single parent and figure out what I value and why. Yeah, what she brings up about safety really hit home for me. Those unexamined assumptions about what makes a school, quote, safe, are so embedded in our bias that we may end up missing what's actually best for our children. And we don't even consider how unsafe white schools can be for children of color. She really brings into focus the cost of inequality across the board. And how do we live our values and what is being said in the things we won't say out loud? Many of us white parents will protest and put Black Lives Matter signs in our yards. But are we willing to take a hard look at what we value for our own children and why? Also, this idea of white cultural training that supposedly prepares kids for success, when in fact, being able to navigate difference in a positive way is what will actually set up our kids for deeper learning and authentic community connections. And where are we being complacent? And where are we being complicit? 
This episode was sponsored by Eastead and produced by Stephen Smith. Our theme music was written and performed by Henry Needham. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to spread the word and check us out on teachingwellwhite.org. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And this is Teaching While White.